second reading today comes from John 14, 15 to 21. Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. In that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And the one who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love them and manifest myself to them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. As I begin, let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, all I would ask by your Spirit is that I would be faithful to your word, edifying to your people, and glorifying to your Son, Jesus. For I ask it in his name. Amen. Jesus continues to speak to troubled hearts. The disciples had hope, clarity for theirs and their nation's future. This Jesus will be king. Now sorrow, grief, a deep fog descend upon that future. They had found comfort and peace, power in his presence, but now he's leaving them. He's going to his death. Jesus continues to speak to troubled hearts. We know something of troubled hearts, don't we? An ongoing pandemic, heightening geopolitical tension, deepening awareness of systemic injustice. We continue to live in ways that unravel us, distanced and apart. Loneliness deepening, relational angst building, mental health collapsing, addictions grip, tightening, anger boiling over. Jesus continues to speak to troubled hearts. And to troubled hearts, he's given an image, paints a picture. Let not your hearts be troubled. Why? For in my Father's house are many rooms. He's painting a picture of a glorious future, not a heavenly one, not a removal from the earth to some sort of spiritual, ethereal existence. But in that image, he's utilizing Jewish marital imagery to paint a picture of a future marriage, a marriage between heaven and earth where our world would be shot through with God's justice, peace, Love, grace, a future where all things would be made new. So what do we do in light of such a future? Trust in Jesus. Be encouraged in our troubled hearts. Lay a hold of this hope. Well, yes, of course. But it doesn't stop there. There's more. As Orvin invited us to look at last week, Jesus invites his disciples to live in anticipation of such a future. 
As he pointed to the kingdom of God come in its fullness and all that he did and said, they, we are to point to that future in all we do and say, you will do the things I do, says Jesus, and greater things. In light of that future, Jesus invites us to pray boldly in his name, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as in heaven In that prayer, weekly, we are yearning for that future, that marriage of heaven and earth. But the disciples, they're full of questions. But but how will we know the way there? And, And how will we do this without your power, your work, your presence, your making the Father known? Questions that must be answered. And so our text read for us today by Mike, which if you have your Bible handy, I'll invite you to turn to. We pick up at verse 15 of chapter 14 as Jesus answers questions. As Jesus continues to speak to troubled hearts. If you love me, then you'll keep my commands If you love me, you'll do the things that I did. And if you do the things that I did, then I'll ask my father and he'll send you another helper. It doesn't seem like encouragement to troubled hearts, does it? This whole section reads like a set of conditions. If, then, if, then, if, then, if you love me, then you will keep my commands. If you keep my commands, then I will ask my father. If I ask my father, then he'll send you another helper. If you love me, then my father will love you. If, then, if, then, if, then. It doesn't seem, read at all, like encouragement to troubled hearts. Rather, a set of conditions that heap upon us a burden of standards that we could not possibly attain. One of the commentators, D.A. Carson, helps us to see the encouragement of these words. Articulating that this isn't describing a set of conditions, but rather it's describing a set of essential relations. Not a set of conditions, a set of essential relations. Our love of God is formed and shaped by God's love of us. We love because he first loved us. Our love of God is is not a feeling, not a verbal profession, though it may include those things. It is a love born out in action, in doing the things that please the Father. Our knowledge of that love, our expression of that love, our obedience to his commands are all interrelated. He's not describing a set of conditions, but rather a set of essential relations. All held together by a gift. A gift from the Father. A gift of another helper. Now, depending on which translation you're using, you're going to find that word translated as as helper, counselor, comforter, advocate, encourager. Whenever you come across a word in English that has a variety of translations, you know that the Greek word has a richness to it that just can't adequately be put to us in English. The Greek here is parakletos. It's made up of two words, para alongside, and kletos, kaleo, to call. 
It was a word that was used in this culture to speak of a witness who was brought into a law court to argue in a person's favor. Jesus is telling us by using this word that the Spirit is the one who comes alongside us to argue with us, to argue for us. What does that look like? Well, Jesus calls the Spirit here, verse 16, another helper. That word another means another of the same kind. So if we understood the nature of the first advocate, it would help us to understand the nature of the second advocate. And who is the first? You guessed it. A Sunday school answer will do here. It is Jesus. In 1 John chapter 2, it says, If anyone sins, we have an advocate, a parakletos with the Father. Jesus is the first advocate. Now, this word gives us a picture of Jesus standing before the Father, arguing for us. Perhaps it might look like this. As Jesus says to the Father, here's Tim. Is he a sinner? Yes. Has he failed to love you as you've loved him? Yes. Has he lived as if he was God of his own life? Yes. Has he rejected your love? Yes. Your law demands that justice be done. Your holiness demands that he cannot come into your presence. But I've lived the life he should have lived. I died the death for him he should have died. I was forsaken that he might be forgiven. I was cast out of your presence so that he might be welcomed in. Jesus is the advocate who does that work before the Father. The Spirit is the advocate who does that work within us. How? By pointing to the first advocate, by pointing to Jesus, for he is the Spirit of truth. And Jesus has just said, I am the truth. The Spirit is revealing the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us. He presses that truth home, he applies that truth to our wounds, our misconceptions our thoughts, our feelings, our actions. The Anglican minister and theologian J.I. Packer tells a story of walking to a church one night to preach a message on the person and work of the Holy Spirit. And as he rounded the corner, he caught sight of the church for the first time and he was awed by its beauty that was illuminated by these floodlights that were projected up upon the building. And he realized in that moment that that was exactly the illustration that his sermon needed that night. He said this, When floodlighting is well done, the floodlights are so placed that you don't see them. You're not, in fact, supposed to see where the light is coming from. All that you're meant to see is the building on which those floodlights are trained. The Spirit is, so to speak, the hidden floodlight shining on Jesus. The Spirit's message is never look at me, listen to me, get to know me, but always look at him. Get to know him. Look at him and see his glory. Listen to him, hear his word, come to him and receive life. Get to know him. Taste his gift of joy, of peace, of love, of grace. Now in verse 18, Jesus gives us an example 
of one of the ways that this works. He says, I will not leave you as orphans, which literally means I won't leave you without a father. But by the Spirit, I will come to you and you will know the love of the Father. Over the years, I've had many people come to me as pastor and say, I know that God loves me, but I don't feel it. I don't experience it. I I don't know it to the very core of my being. And they know if they saw it, they felt it, they experienced it, rooted their identity in it, it would radically change how they navigated life. For if we only truly knew that we were loved, accepted, and forgiven, we wouldn't overwork to build our identity and success. We wouldn't be so anxious about what other people think of us. We wouldn't be so defensive or overly sensitive to criticism. We wouldn't be consumed with guilt, punishing ourselves for not living up even to our own standards. We just wouldn't. And so they, we ask, how do I know, truly know that I'm loved and accepted? Know that to the very core of my being. And I've often been quick to respond in these moments. It can be a real danger to base your relationship with God on your feelings. But just as in human relationships, there are times that you don't feel loved. We must recall what that person's done for us, the promises, the commitments they've made to us. Recall then God's love for you, that he sent his son to die in your place. Recall his promises that he will be with you to the end of the age, that he's made you an inheritor of an eternal kingdom. Don't let your feelings determine the truth of that relationship. Let the truth of that relationship determine your feelings. Now that might be true, but it's only a half-truth. For God longs to give his children an experience of his love. I will not leave you as orphans, he says. I won't leave you without a father. I will send my spirit to make known the love of the father. As Paul puts it in Romans 8, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are indeed children of God, that we can cry out, Abba, Father. One of the preachers that's had quite an impact on my life has been the Welshman D.M. Lloyd-Jones. And when he speaks of this work of the Spirit, he uses an illustration, I think from the 16th or 17th century, with Thomas Goodwin. And he invites us to imagine for a moment a, a father with a, with a daughter or a son, and they're, they're walking down the road together, father-daughter, daughter-father. The little girl knows that this man is her father and that her father loves her. But suddenly the father stops, bends down, gathers her up in his arms, swings her around, embraces her, kisses her, whispers in her ear, I love you. The girl is no more a daughter when she's being embraced and kissed than she was before. Father's action has not changed her status in any way. Oh, the difference in the enjoyment, the experience of that status. 
And one preacher put it this way. God gives us the very spirit of his son and grants us to feel the affections of belonging to the family of God. I remember it one of the darkest times in my life where every aspect of my life seemed in shambles around me. I had no hope for the future. There was an inner dialogue of self-loathing that just kept repeating. If there was ever a time in my life that I contemplated ending it all, it was then in that moment. That summer, I'd gotten a great deal with a friend on a tour of Israel. And so we'd gone over, and part of the, the tour was staying at a hotel in Jerusalem that was run by Orthodox Jews. And as a result, they had different times where guys and girls could go to the pool. And, uh, but children of any age could go with either parent. So we went down during the guys' time to be at the pool. We took our lounge chairs, and I began to watch the little kids playing with their fathers, squealing in delight as they ran around the pool deck and leapt off the edge into their father's arms. Abba! Abba, they cried. In that moment, I got what I could only call a deep spiritual impression, giving me the sense that God was saying to me in that moment, in the midst of the shambles my life was in at the time, Tim, just leap off the edge into my arms. I'll catch you. I love you. In Jesus, I am your Abba your father. In that moment, the truth of who I was in Christ was pressed down by the Spirit. The darkness lifted. The future grew brighter. The inner dialogue of self-loathing quieted. For a seed to grow and bear fruit, it must be pressed down into the fertile earth. For the truth of who God is to bear fruit, it must be pressed down into our hearts. That's the work of the Spirit, the other advocate, the Spirit of truth who reveals the person and work of Jesus, the first advocate, pressing truth home, applying that truth to our wounds, our misconceptions, our thoughts, our feelings, our actions. Jesus continues to speak to troubled hearts, bringing a future, a marriage of heaven and earth, where the world would be shot through with the beauty, love, justice of the living God. My people will live in anticipation of that future in all they do and say and pray. But, 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 we ask along with the disciples, how will we know the way there? How will we do that work without Jesus' work, his power, his presence, his making the Father known? Jesus has given us here a set of essential relations. As we know the Father's love, we love. A love expressed in obedience, doing what pleases the Father. A set of essential relations all made possible by a gift. A gift from the Father. The gift of another advocate. So how do we receive this other advocate? By receiving the first. Receiving Jesus His work for the forgiveness of sins, his promise of that future inheritance, the marriage of heaven and earth. 
And as we receive Jesus, we receive the Spirit who enables us to live in anticipation of this future in the mix of these essential relations. And we see the fruit of these essential relations played out in the history of the people of God. In England, 1790s, tens of thousands of people came to faith in Jesus within the span of a few years. Men and women were shaped by the Spirit to live in anticipation of that future as they brought about social change. As prisons were reformed, the slave trade was abolished. Wales, 1904. A hundred thousand come to faith in Jesus within a year. The Spirit shapes a people to live in anticipation of a future of heaven and earth coming together as Welsh society is transformed. The coal miners and owners find common ground. Jealousies vanish. Family feuds healed. Convictions for public drunkenness halved. There is unity within Christian community. And closer to home, Saskatchewan, 1971. Multitudes come to faith in Jesus. A movement radiates out into neighboring provinces. The Spirit shapes a people to live in anticipation of the marriage of heaven and earth in what was called a revolution of love. The hurting deeply cared for. Countless stories of stolen property returned. Broken relationships healed. So come, Holy Spirit, come. Take up residence within us. Flood this dry earth with the water of your presence. Press the truth of Jesus deep within our hearts. Make us to see and know the love of the Father that we would love, that we would obey, that we would bear witness in the midst of the realities in our world that trouble our hearts, pointing to a future of the marriage of heaven and earth where our world would be shot through with God's justice, love, and peace. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Take up residence within our troubled hearts. Amen. You've just listened to a podcast from Little Trinity Church in Toronto. Please check out our website at www.littletrinity.org to find out more about our ministries and services.